Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. And if you're thinking about uh, putting a new set of windows or new door in your home, you should maybe first think about heading out to the showroom, a.k.a. experience centers. I like that. I like that terminology. In Omaha and Lincoln. You can schedule a time to visit and see all that Pella has to offer in the open showroom that allows you to really touch and feel your new window, your new doors, while mixing and matching the unique combinations that fit your home. The showroom is pretty sweet, man. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my pals at Runza. I'm going to keep hammering this, man, because you just you need to do it. You need to stop everything you're doing right now and go check out the brand new Ruben Runza sandwich. It is everything. I'm talking everything. You love about a Reuben wrapped up inside the greatness of a Runza sandwich. Get to Runza today and try the new Reuben Runza. And while you're there, tell them your pal, your buddy, your BFF, your homie, Nick Ba, sent you. Okay, it is Thursday, March 25th. It's about 1230 uh, in the afternoon, Central Time. And coming up on this pod, here, here's, here's kind of the menu for you guys here. Deep Dive. With some takeaways from the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, because, man, if you're like me, I did nothing but sit my ass on the couch and watch every game for really five straight days if you count the playing games with, you know, Drake and Wichita and Michigan State, UCLA and everything. But so certainly there's a lot to us to discuss. And then, you know, I'm going to try my best to explain what was one of the bigger storylines of the first weekend. And that was what the hell happened to the Big Ten Conference? Only have one team left in the Sweet 16. I'm going to attempt to kind of lay out all that I kind of see and and digest with the Big Ten and trying to explain the fact that they only have one team left in the Sweet 16. And then I'm going to talk some Creighton-Gonzaga. I'll lay out the keys to that game and how Creighton can keep this game tight and maybe, maybe try to, to slay the monster that is uh, Mark Few's squad with Jalen Suggs and Kispert and Timmy and those guys. And then I'll preview the rest of the Sweet 16 with some picks and thoughts. So there's there's a lot to get you on this pod, so let's get to it, man. I'd imagine your bracket is a lot like mine. It completely in shambles in a lot of different ways, especially the South and the Midwest region. I mean, holy guacamole. I mean, if, it, it was just a crazy opening weekend of the, of the NCAA tournament. In fact, if you look at it this way, it was the craziest opening, opening weekend we've maybe ever had. This is this this NCAA tournament, this Sweet 16 right now, this is a record for the highest average seed in the Sweet 16 in NCAA tournament history. The average seed is 5.88. So it was nuts. And, you know, in some ways, it, you, you could kind of – it was kind of expected, right, because it's been a wild and crazy season with COVID, right? It, so it makes sense that the tournament would kind of mirror that. And I still think the no crowd factor is making an impact. I think the bubble factor is probably making some kind of an impact where people are just quarantined inside their hotel rooms. They can't leave. They got escorts everywhere. They're getting tested every day. There's all that stuff. You know, I mean, you get 
Uh, you know, some Big Ten teams have been there for for a few weeks now. All that. And but again, this season felt probably as wide open outside of Gonzaga and Baylor for most of the year. Um, when you when you sat and watched college basketball throughout the season, so it makes sense that 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 throughout the first weekend we'd have wild upsets and outcomes in the opening weekend. I mean, we got a we had a 15 seed win, we had a 14 seed win, a 13 seed win, a 12 seed win. You, you have a 12 seed in the Sweet 16, right? Like you got two 11 seeds in the Sweet 16. I mean, it's 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 crazy, right? And you know, sometimes we have to we have to say out loud. To, remi- to remind ourselves that we have a Sweet 16 that doesn't feature Duke, North Carolina, Michigan State, Kentucky, Kansas, hell, even the defending national champs, Virginia, they got bounced in the first round. It's just wild. So it's, it's been a wild season, and it's been a wild NCAA tournament. And on my podcast last week, I gave you guys my region-by-region region predictions. So if you listen to those, you know what teams I liked and what teams I didn't. And, you know... My bracket is a little busted up, right? Like I still have, I have eight teams still live in the sweet in 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 the sweet sixteen. I got the I got actually got the West region perfect. How about that? I got Gonzaga. I picked Gonzaga, Creighton, USC, and Oregon. That's what it is. In the East, I got Michigan and Florida State. Right, that's it. The South total disaster. Only got Baylor right. And Midwest total disaster. Only got Houston right. I still got I got five of my elite eight still alive and three of my final four picks still alive and my national championship game of Gonzaga and, and Baylor is still very much alive and my national champ Gonzaga of course is still alive and kicking the teams that you know Colin Coward always does this segment where Colin was right Colin was wrong I can give you like where Nick was right where Nick was wrong where I was most wrong I had Oklahoma State in the final four and as I watched them just play so undisciplined against Oregon State and lose it just was like kicking myself I really thought with Cade Cunningham and the athleticism of the other the other Cowboys around him that I thought they were poised to make a deep run but I whiffed on that and what you find out is discipline matters right like operating with intelligence and being comfortable in the half court all matters and then the other team I probably whiffed on the most was UConn I had UConn in the Elite Eight and they were awful against Maryland I mean, just awful. But I will say this in watching that game. They did do a lot of the things I thought they would do. They just weren't able to convert them into points. Most notably, I think UConn had like 21 offensive rebounds, and they barely turned it into any second-chance points. They missed a million layups. Like, they had numerous opportunities. I'm sitting there watching that game, and I'm like, man, this feels like a game UConn should be up by like five or six points, and they were down by 10 or 12 points. But nevertheless, you got to own it, right? I whiffed on UConn. I thought UConn was going to make a run, get the Elite Eight, and they whiffed. Or I whiffed on them. And then obviously, I whiffed on Ohio State making it to the Elite Eight, like a, like a lot of you probably did as well. I don't know how many people picked Oral Roberts in their bracket. But in a lot of ways, Oral Roberts, if someone would say, what's your favorite thing, biggest takeaway, favorite thing from the first weekend of the tournament? It's Oral Roberts. And th- the reason why I say that is Oral Roberts embodies what is great about the NCAA tournament. Because think about this. Oral Roberts finished fourth in the Summit League. Fourth in the Summit League. Not the ACC, not the Big Ten, not the Big East, not the Big 12. In the Summit League. Fourth. Oral Roberts had to win the Summit League title game 
basically at the buzzer over North Dakota State just to get into the tournament. And here they are in the Sweet 16. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. Fourth in the Summit League, had to win their conference tournament. They win it basically at the buzzer. Now they're in the Sweet 16. They beat freaking Ohio State and Florida. And, you know, it's the the NCAA tournament is, if we're being honest, probably the worst way to crown the best team in terms of its structure. But on an but it is a 10 out of 10 off the charts great on the entertainment scale. And Oral Roberts is a perfect example of that. And and beyond that, because above everything else, the 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 NCAA tournament, the tournament provides hope and an opportunity to make a run. Beyond everything else, the NCAA tournament march the way it's constructed for college basketball provides hope and an opportunity to make a run. No matter what kind of season you've had, you always got a chance in March to control your own fate, control your own destiny, and make a run. Everybody is afforded the opportunity to go to their conference tournament, win their conference tournament, collect that automatic bid, and go swing away in the NCAA tournament. Everybody's got that chance. From Oral Roberts to Duke, everybody's got that To Abilene Christian to Texas, everybody's got that chance. And it's just, it's nuts. You watch, the thing that's that's maybe the most nuts about it is, tell you what, you watch, you watch Oral Roberts beat Ohio State and beat Florida, it didn't feel fluky, did it? Like, you know, some games you watch, like, this feels like, you know, in some ways that Abilene Christian Texas game feels like, man, if they, if they tipped that ball up and played a seven-game series, that, that might have been the only game Abilene Christian was going to win. But, but there was some about that Oral Roberts, it didn't feel fluky. Max Asmus, O'Banner, just straight up kicked some Asmus. <laughs> they just they just kicked some ass, man. But Oral Roberts to me was kind of my biggest, my favorite storyline coming out of the first round, first first weekend of the tournament. Just a perfect example of the beauty of the opportunity that March provides everyone. But one of the biggest storylines was. What the hell happened to the Big Ten, right? I mean, all year, the Big Ten, they were branded as not just the best conference in the country. It was branded and talked about as one of the greatest individual seasons a collective conference has ever had. Like, there were people talking in February. People were saying, like, the the Big Ten was historically all-time great this season. That was that was the narrative. They get nine teams in the tournament. Nine Big Ten teams made the tournament. They had two number one seeds, two number two seeds, a four seed, two number seven seeds, a nine seed, and an eleven seed. You know, it, it's it's nuts. They also had a ten seed in Rutgers. Like it's just, it's crazy. But for all those Big Ten teams to make the NCAA tournament, to only have one left, one, a one-seed Michigan, is is pretty wild. 
And so you sit there and go, what happened? What, what's, what, what, how did, what happened? Before I, before I, I try to explain it, you know, before I explain it, be, be careful. Let me first say this. Be careful about using the NCAA tournament results as gospel or a complete referendum on a conference. Just be careful with that. I get that we're all guilty of it. Like right now, the Pac-12 is the greatest things ever, and the Big Ten's awful. Just be careful about that. Like I get it, and I think we can talk about that. We can acknowledge elements of that, but I think we also can just you know, just be careful. Because in basketball, in, in the game of basketball, for 40 minutes, anything can happen. Anything can happen. And the reality is, if you really look back on the entire first weekend, like, man, a lot of these a lot of these games are a play here, a play there, one made shot, one missed shot from everything looking different. Or, if, I mean, Michigan State was up 14 and dominating UCLA and lost. I mean, if in, in that we're talking about Oral Roberts, I mean, if, if Dwayne Washington's three at the buzzer goes down, maybe Ohio State advances and in, 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 in goes on to win. Maybe they go into OT and they win. I'm watching that Rutgers-Houston game, man. Miles Johnson, big man for Rutgers. He misses a wide-open dunk with about four minutes left that would have put Rutgers up 10. But he misses that dunk. Houston then gets a run out, bangs a three. So it's a five-point swing. Instead of being up 10, it's a five-point game. Houston gets all the momentum, goes on to win. Even if you look outside the Big Ten, even look at Creighton. Their first-round game. UC Santa Barbara's stud big man, Amadou So, he gets basically a layup with two seconds left to win the game, and he misses. And Creighton's now in the Sweet 16. So Creighton was a missed layup away from going home, and now they're in the Sweet 16, and they got a shot to take down Gonzaga. And I get it, I get it. Ifs and buts, ifs and buts, but this I'm just saying, basketball more so than any other sport, for one game, anything can happen. There's a reason that the NBA playoffs are seven game series, you know? Like, so I, w- I want to start with just first saying that. But e- even with saying that, I think we all can agree that it's incredibly disappointing for the Big Ten. Incredibly disappointing for the Big Ten. Again, when the narrative is, the narrative and branding is Big Ten by far the best conference in the country. Big Ten historically all time great season for the conference. Two one seeds, two two seeds. What you got? Nine Big Ten teams in the field. You only have one team left in the Sweet Sixteen. Obviously, that's incredibly disappointing. But I, but I will say this. So. Being being a college basketball analyst for Fox, for Fox, for Fox Sports 1, I cover primarily the Big East. The conference that I call the most of and, and cover the most is the Big East. But I also call a, a good amount of, of Big Ten, too. I do some, some Big Ten games. Obviously, Fox does have a portion of the Big Ten rights. I see a lot of Big Ten and call a lot of Big Ten. I saw Michigan State three times. I saw Iowa three times. I, you know, I did Michigan twice. I saw Nebraska, Indiana, Rutgers all live in person. I called all those games all in person. And I obviously then watched the league closely all year. And I thought the Big Ten was good. But I guess I wasn't um, I wasn't chugging the Big Ten Kool-Aid as much as maybe other people were or the national perception was. Again, 
I thought the I thought the conference was good. I don't want to turn the mic here and be like, I oh, thought the conference stunk. I don't think that at all. But I wasn't the way it was getting talked about. I, I was. I, I didn't necessarily completely see it like that. Like for me, this is how I saw it. I thought Illinois and Michigan were elite. I thought they were really good. I think they're one of the, those are two of the five best teams in the country. Then I thought there was a gap. And then you had Iowa and Ohio State. Good teams, got some some holes and some weaknesses, but good teams, right? To me, then there's another gap. And then I thought the middle of the league, teams like Purdue and Rutgers and Wisconsin and Maryland and Michigan State, I thought they were they were just okay. They're good. They're, they're fine. Had some good days, had some bad days. Like they're, they're, they were they're good. But not but they're okay. So, so it's just, it's weird. Like, I don't want to be disingenuous and say, I'm absolutely shocked. Eh. But I also don't want to be disingenuous and say, I expected this, man. I, didn't, I expected this. Nah. Because I didn't expect to just have one Big Ten team left in the Sweet 16. I, I, I didn't expect that. But in my bracket, I only had I only had four Big Ten teams in the Sweet 16. I had Illinois, Michigan, Ohio State, and Purdue. That was it. That was it. So I guess I'm just, I wanted to lay all that out because I'm trying to be honest and transparent about my reaction to this and my kind of thoughts heading in and projection of things heading in. But here's, here's, here's how I'd get to the explanation part of all this stuff. Here's, I think in some ways it was a perfect storm for the Big Ten for the narrative to be built for the, for the, the perception of the Big Ten. And here's how to explain it. I do think a big, big issue was the limited non-conference sample size. I kept on beating this drum to people. Different bracketologists I would communicate with all the time. Like, like I always felt like this is what made projecting the NCAA tournament so hard and seeding it and fielding the 68 teams not just because of no fans and home and road being different, but like it was such a disjointed non-conference where you not everyone played all their non-conference games. Like it was hard to know how good certain conferences were, really were. And I think that that played into this with the Big Ten, like things like the, even the Gavit games, the Big East versus the Big Ten, got canceled. Like a lot of a lot of teams didn't play all their get to play all of their scheduled non-con games. It, was, it wasn't how it usually is. It was a super limited non-conference schedule. And let's be honest, that's how you get a better feel for a conference's strength. And oftentimes, conference perception gets built off of that. But with, with that in mind, here's even what I fully never understood. Do yourself a favor. Well, I guess I can do it for you right now. Go back, go look at all the big, go, go look at the Big Ten's non-conference wins. They didn't really beat anybody. Like, what's the best Big Ten non-conference win? There really, there really isn't a, 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 a just a banner win, like, eh. Michigan played nobody. Illinois, 
they got they played Baylor and, and hung in there for a while, and then Baylor just rocked them late and actually lost two big. I mean, so they lost to ba- Illinois, lost to Baylor and lost to Missouri. Illinois did beat Duke, and that was back when everyone thought Duke was good. But as the season played on, you realize, oh, Duke's not very good. Same thing with Michigan State. Their only good non-conference win was against Duke. And again, that was back when everybody thought Duke was good. Like, hey, man, you win at Duke. That's pretty good. Well, as the season played out, you found out this Duke team's not good. They didn't even make the NCAA tournament. You look at Iowa, got hammered by Gonzaga. And then, same thing. They beat North Carolina in Iowa City back when everybody thought North Carolina was really good. But as the season played out, you realize North Carolina's not that good. North Carolina's not that good. Ohio State, their best win, they beat UCLA, who was an 11 seed, but that was it. And listen, how many people a week ago were, were acting like UCLA was this elite, great team? Yeah. so let's not be, let's, let's not have, let's not look back on this thing and be a little bit revisionist here. But Purdue, who, who actually Purdue lost to Clemson and Miami in the non-con. Wisconsin lost to Marquette. And then they beat Louisville when they were when Louisville was coming off of COVID, and Louisville didn't even make the tournament. So clearly not a great team. Indiana lost to Texas and Florida State. Indiana did, you know, they beat. I guess their two other air quote good wins would be they beat Providence, a team that wasn't very good and didn't make the tournament, and they beat a decent Stanford team, but this a Stanford team that was fourteen and thirteen and didn't make the tournament. Minnesota's best win is probably St. Louis. Yeah a team that didn't make the tournament. Rutgers did beat Syracuse, but I mean, again, Syracuse is a team that barely got in the tournament. Maryland, no good wins, lost to Clemson. Penn State, honestly, Penn State might have the two best wins, beating VCU and Virginia Tech, but they also lost to Seton Hall at home. You look at Northwestern, didn't beat anyone. Nebraska didn't beat anyone. I could go on and on, but you get the point. I guess for me, I just, I felt like I never fully understood the perception based on the limited non-con sample size and the non-con results. So I kind of felt like the, the, there was this feeling for me at least that the, the narrative and the perception was somewhat built on a house of cards and maybe wasn't as strong as it was made out to be based on the non-conference in a variety of ways. I think a lot of it was probably built on the perception of a year ago. You know, the Big Ten was, was good again was pretty good a year ago. So when things got off to a decent start and the Big Ten was winning games, they just like, oh, yeah, we assume that this team's good, that team's good, this team's good. So that's the, that's the first thing I'll say. D- dig into the non-con stuff. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing, matchups matter. I'm not here to be Mr. Excuse, but... I always say excuses and reasons are, you know, tra- branches from the same tree, right? Like, I will say this. I thought Illinois and Iowa got two, they got awful matchups and awful draws. I thought the two most underseeded teams in the tournament were Loyola and Oregon. I mean, guys, Loyola's a top 10 Ken Palm team. Top 10. And they were an eight seed. They have the number one Ken Palm defensive efficiency ranking in the country. So they got the number one defense in the country, and they got Final Four experience on that roster. That's a tough draw. Now, to be fair, I picked Illinois to win that game, 
and I was shocked with how that game played out from the standpoint of Illinois got their ass kicked. Illinois got dominated. There wasn't even that game, like that final score isn't even in Dick. It, it doesn't fully tell the story of how bad the Illinois got dominated thoroughly. But still, matchup was bad. And the same thing with Oregon. If you've listened to me, I've been singing the praises of, of Oregon. And some people chalked it up like, ah, oh, Bod has played for Altman. He's just drinking the Altman Kool-Aid. Eh, I don't know, man. Oregon, Oregon has been disjointed with injuries and COVID stuff all year. And they didn't have their top five dudes together and really the, for the fi- until the final month or so of the regular season. Will Richardson was dealing with a, uh, I think it was a wrist injury. All missed the whole first half of the season. So I just always felt like that team is way better than their record is showing right now. But even with that better than the record showing right now, they won the Pac-12 outright. Oregon won the Pac-12 outright. And at least right now, if you want to buy into this, like the Pac-12 is clearly better than we all thought it was. Plus, again, matchup-wise, Iowa's weaknesses were they, they're not very good defensively and they're not very athletic. Well, Oregon is freaky athletic. And Oregon can score. So, again, not making excuses, but I will say Iowa and Illinois got tough matchups. Really, really, really tough matchups. And then lastly, with the with with the Big Ten opening weekend and its struggles. And and trying to explain it. You know. The the league is constructed in a way that I think sometimes makes it challenging in March. To put it it cleanly and, and simply, the Big Ten is a league built on post players. And winning in the NCAA tournament is built on guard play. It's almost like the complete the the opposite in college football with the Big 12 conference, right? The the Big 12 is a skill position, spread you out, air it out, throw it 50 times a game conference. And you haven't seen a lot of Big 12 teams have success in the playoff. Why? Because to win in the college football playoff against Ohio State and Clemson and Bama and those kinds, you better be elite in the trenches. So it's almost like the opposite, but it's similar in that regard. Where you think about the Big 12 and how they're built as a collective conference for football, when they then get into the college football playoff, they're not built from a roster standpoint to have success in in the playoff against teams like Clemson and, and Bama. In college basketball, to win in March, you better have elite guards. And the Big Ten is a conference kind of built around elite centers. Like, I'm talking pure five men and post players. Like, when when you, if you put out, a, if you get out a pen and a paper right now, and you just, and you just start listing the best players in the conference, you basically list all centers and all forwards. I mean, hell, the all-conference, the first-team all-conference team was like four centers. Right? You start listening, you go, okay, all right, Luca Garza, Kofi Coburn, Hunter Dickinson, Trace Jackson Davis, Travion Williams, Micah Potter, Nate Reavers, Miles Johnson, EJ Liddell. Center, 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 power forward, center. 
That's where the strength and identity of the conference kind of lies. And I've said it all year. I've said it on various radio shows I've gone on and across the country. Other than Io Dosumu, what guard in the Big Ten is elite All-American level guy that you are just like, if you see that guy in the NCAA tournament, you are like, oh, shit. Other than Io Dosumu, and really even, Io Dosumu clearly has got some limitations as they said. Like he's, you know, he's very right-hand dominant. He, he's not a great perimeter three-point shooter. But Io's Io. Io's legit. And listen, that's not to say that, that guys like, you know, Demetri Trice and Isaiah Livers and Dwayne Washington and Joe Wieskamp, those types of dudes, aren't good players. They are good players. But I guess I don't view those guys as the, like elite All-American carrier team deep in March types of guys. And behind every great NCAA tournament team that makes a deep run, you find elite All-American caliber guard play. I mean, I was thinking about this. You'd maybe have to go, you'd maybe have to go back to Florida's back-to-back titles in 2006 and 2007 to find a team that was 100% led by their post players in Al Horford and Joe Kim Noah. Like, just, just think about just think about the majority of teams that make deep runs in the NCAA tournament and what's the common denominator behind a lot of those teams. Guards. Great, elite, all-American caliber guards. The tournament's always been about your 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 backcourt, your ball handlers, your guards, and the game even has shifted towards that even more in the last five to ten years. So that is also a factor. And I guess that's how that's how I would explain some of the Big Ten struggles in the first weekend. So very surprising that you only have one team, Big Ten team left. But when you dig into it and unpack it and dissect it, it begins to make a little more sense the more you kind of comb through it. Okay. Going to shift gears here for a second. Um, I guess, should I give you a, a Mike Greenberg, Greeny-esque tease here? Coming up next, I'm going to give you my Sweet 16 picks and try to lay out how Creighton plays Gonzaga. And the one little stat that I found combing through things that is real intriguing. But first, let's hear about White Castle Pella and Runza. All right, let's take a quick break from the podcast to talk about a brand new sponsor to the podcast, White Castle Roofing. Some good friends of mine, Jake and Carissa and the whole gang at White Castle. Just feels great to have them on board. And listen, it's been a rough winter and a rough few weeks with rain. You don't want to mess around with your roof. White Castle is the place to call. White Castle can handle everything from replacements to repairs. And here's the thing. White Castle Roofing can send out an expert and give you an honest assessment of what's going on, even even if that means nothing needs to be done. They are experts, and they shoot you straight. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing with uh, some damage and, and a leak in my house. So I got my guy Ben from White Castle coming out to take a look at it. And I feel great about it because when it comes to your roof, you don't want to mess around. You need people you can trust. And I've worked with White Castle before with my old house in Omaha. They did a great job. I trust White Castle because let's be honest, I'm way out of my element with this stuff. I need people that communicate every step of the way from start to finish. That's White Castle. Check them out online 
whitecastleroofing.com. White Castle Roofing, built with trust, proven by time. And while we're here, let's talk about Pella windows and doors. And, you know, putting in a new door, new window, it's really exciting, but sometimes you don't even know where to begin. Let me help you out. First of all, you got to go with Pella. And when you go with Pella, the couple directions you can go from there. First of all, you can schedule a free in-home consultation where you're going to get a Pella expert out to come out and take a look at your home, and they're going to be able to get a Greg McDermott-esque game plan for you that fits your budgets, your home, your wants, and your needs. That's one option. Or the second option, head out to their showroom. The showroom's really cool. They got one open in Omaha and Lincoln. Sometimes it actually helps to see the window, see the door, open it, close it to get a better feel for exactly what you are installing into your house. So the showroom's a great place to go as well. Any direction you can go, just know that Pella can 100% provide window and door solutions to any home. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And uh, the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my pals at Runza. You know, when... When Creighton took down Ohio and 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 punched their their way through to the Sweet 16, I'm I'm driving home from Omaha. I, I hadn't had dinner and I'm in a celebratory mood. So you know where I was headed. I, I was heading straight to Runza. I was like, this is a big moment for me. I need that good Runza food. Man, that's that's what I need. So I, you know, I got myself a cheese Runza, large order of French fries. I also love my wife and I love to split the Southwest chicken salad. Oh, it's just that with the zesty ranch. Oh my God, that zesty ranch is just fantastic. I got home. I smashed that cheese Runza, smashed that large order of French fries, the best fries on the planet, had some of that Southwest chicken salad, and I felt fantastic about it. That's just it. That's Runza for me. In these big moments. I want to I want to go to Runza to celebrate. That's the reality of the situation, all right? That's what you need to do. Runza makes it all better. All right, back to the pot. Okay, so Creighton made history in in making it to the Sweet 16 for the first time since the tournament expanded. So basically the first time in program history in my book. Incredibly exciting for the Creighton basketball program and it's something that has been hanging over the program for a long time. They, they've Creighton as a as a collective basketball program has accomplished a lot. They've had All Americans. They've had you know they now have had a three thousand point score. They've had they've had players of the year. They've they've won conference titles. They've all this. The one thing they they haven't had and it's been hanging over is a deep run in the NCAA tournament to the second weekend. They finally can kind of check that 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 box for their program and for their accomplishment. They get to play twenty eight and zero number one ranked Gonzaga. <laughs> Tough. But you know what, man? No, no, you can't cry. Like, you got to embrace it. And the reality is, when you get to this stage of the season, what do you think you're going to play, you know, Arby's A&M, right? Like, you think you're going to play roast beef state? No. You're going to play good teams. You're going to play great teams. There are only 16 teams left. You're going to play great teams. And Gonzaga is great. They are the real deal. They are 28-0, and they have a legitimate great shot at going undefeated and being the first team since the 76 Indiana Indiana Hoosiers to go undefeated and win a national title. They're, they're legit. And when I, when I size this game up, there, here are a few things that kind of jump out at me right away. So if you, Creighton, Creighton in its first two games of the tournament, has seen two excellent guards, Ja'Cory McLaughlin of UC Santa Barbara and then Jason Preston for Ohio. And Creighton's defensive game plan was 
going to trap those guys whenever they come off any sort of screen. Going to send two guys at him. Almost always it was Denzel Mahoney and Christian Bishop. Going to push those guys way, push them up the floor away from the basket, make them get the ball out of their hands, and force the other four guys on the floor to beat you. Basically say, all right, McLaughlin, Preston, you, nope, you're not, get the ball out of your hands. These other four guys, they're going to, we're, we're going to take our chances playing four, three against four, and the other four guys, they're going to have to handle the ball, make reads, make plays, and make shots. But we aren't letting the, the stud, Jason Preston, Ja'Cory McLaughlin, keep the ball in their hands and make plays and score. And that plan worked to perfection, especially against Ohio. But it's one thing to do that against UC Santa Barbara and Ohio. It's a totally different deal to do that against Gonzaga. You're going you're gonna to double Jalen Suggs and let Corey Kispert, Drew Timmy, Joel Aie, and Andrew Nemhart attack you four on three? Um, no. That's a recipe to get 100 hung on you. So the, the first thing, I'm curious to see Creighton's defensive game plan from a schematic standpoint. Because Creighton's a team, some teams just kind of do what they do, no matter what. Like, their like defensive principles, it's, they don't alter based on who they're playing. That's not really how Creighton's built. They're very scouting report specific. They'll, they'll say, hey, like I'm talking about, hey, James Booknight or Ja'Cory McLaughlin, James, Jason Preston, going to double ball screens, going to get the ball out of their hands, make those other four guys beat you. Or they'll they'll play a certain guy and and sit in the paint and not get outside, get extended past 15 feet and make them shoot threes, right? Like they're very scatter report specific, personnel based specific on how they maybe construct things from the standpoint of how far they're closing out on guys, how they're handling ball screens, down screens, whatever. So. I'm curious what that looks like because it's harder to double any one single player because of all the weapons on the floor for Gonzaga. And it's harder to – they don't really have uh, – I think uh, you know Creighton has terminology. They call it dorking someone, which is not the nice thing. But, they go, but like where they, they basically don't – that's when they don't guard someone out on the perimeter at all. They don't. There isn't really anybody on Gonzaga's roster that you can just totally punk and say, we're not going to guard that guy. We're not going to get extended past 15 feet. So I'm curious, what does the game plan look like? Because the reality is, when you're, when you're playing a team as talented and balanced as Gonzaga, you're probably going to have to kind of just play them straight up, mano y mano. But e- even with it that, within that straight up mano a mano kind of mindset, there are three things, in my opinion, if you're Creighton, you have to sell out to trying to eliminate the best you can against Gonzaga. Obviously, what I'm about to lay out is way easier said than done, and it's very Captain Obvious, but you still got to do it. The first one is transition. Creighton's Creighton's transition defense has to be the best it's been all year by a mile. They haven't seen a team that is as lethal as Gonzaga is in the open floor, passes the ball the way Gonzaga does in the open floor, has the multitude of weapons and playmakers in the open floor. This team, this Gonzaga team averages 92 points per game. Leads the nation in scoring. Number one in Ken Palm offensive efficiency. Number two in tempo. They get out and run it up your ass. And they get great shots in the open floor. Timmy can run for a big guy. 
Suggs is fast with the ball. Kispert runs to that three-point line. Ayayi and Nemhard are really athletic. Nemhard's got really good vision. Creighton has to get back. They got to stop the ball. They got to get matched up. Especially Marcus Zagorowski drives the ball to the basket a lot. So that means guys like Ballock and Jefferson and Mahoney, they're they got to be rotating back for defensive balance. Does that make sense? So picture the picture the court when Zagorowski's driving the ball into the basket, he's your point guard. And oftentimes your point guard's the one that's got to be the guy that's screaming back. Well, Ballock and those guys, they got to recognize when Zagorowski gets in the lane, they got to be floating back for defensive balance. Or they're going to they're going to get Gonzaga's going to run it up their ass. Creighton's got to get back. They got to stop the ball. They got to get matched up. Transition defense enormous. The second thing is Corey Kispert's open threes. You you can't you gotta stay attached to that dude at all times. You can't overhelp off him on penetration. You gotta stay attached to his body coming off single pin downs, double staggered screens, ball screens, whatever the case may be. You cannot give this guy any daylight to tee up some good clean looks. Can't give him any open threes. I mean, this guy is an elite big time three point shooter. For Creighton fans that haven't seen him, this guy is a Mitch Ballock-level shooter. Now, again, you're never going to completely shut a guy like that down, but what you can't give him are those, you know, blow a a switch, uh, idiotically help off of him, don't get matched up, and he's got all day to line one up. You cannot afford those. But you you have to limit his three-point opportunities. And then the third thing... The, the guy I'm most worried about in this entire game is is really it's Drew Timmy in the post. You you probably can't come with a full double team because of what we talked about in allowing Gonzaga to then play four on three, but you got to dig it out of the post and make it tough for Timmy in one way or another. Like if you let if you let Drew Timmy play one on one in the post against Christian Bishop, he's going to have twenty five or thirty, and he's going to foul Christian Bishop out of the game. Let me repeat that. If you allow Drew Timmy to play one-on-one in the post against Christian Bishop, he's going to have 25 points, and he's going to foul Christian out of the game. So how does Creighton defend? So how Creighton defends Timmy in the post will be really, really interesting and important to watch. Because there are ways you can make, make things tough on a post player without coming to the full double team. Do they dig it out, meaning the, they, they don't come with a full double, but the guard kind of is in and out, sitting on Timmy's lap so he can't get fully comfortable to get into his move? Do they maybe try and work to front and have backside help so he can't get it in there? What do they do? There, again, there are ways to disjoint a post player, make life tough on a post player without coming with just a full-fledged double team. I'll be real interested to see what they, how they handle Timmy. Because if you let Drew Timmy get touches and operate in space, he's going to be a big, big problem for Christian Bishop. And, and Christian Bishop can't get into foul trouble. That's maybe above everything else. That's maybe my number one concern for, for this game. Not just because Drew Timmy can score, but he can also get Christian Bishop off the floor with foul trouble. And Creighton, as we've seen is a different team when he's off the floor. They need Christian Bishop on the floor. So I'll be watching this really closely.
And then, you know, obviously people probably are like, uh, you heard of Jalen Suggs? Yeah, I've heard of Jalen Suggs. I mean, the guy's, the guy's incredible, man. I mean, J- Jalen Suggs obviously po- poses massive problems too. But to me, you just got to kind of make him score over the top of you. It's pretty straightforward what you got to do with that guy. He's not he's a good three-point shooter, not great. Shoots about 33% from three. He's really capable and he can get hot and he makes timely ones. But I I guess I'd rather I I'd rather make Jalen Suggs shoot contested jumpers than have him getting into the paint. The reality is if if Jalen Suggs and Drew Timmy have space, you're gonna get torched. So corral them in transition. Eliminate the best you can easy open threes for Kispert. Again, he's not he, he's gonna get a few, but you can't give him the easy ones. And then somehow, some way, you gotta make things uncomfortable for, for Drew Timmy. You dig it out of the post, don't let him operate one-on-one frequently down there. And, you know, maybe in saying all that, maybe the answer is that Creighton at times sprinkles in their their they kind of run a, a, a funky kind of 1-1-3 one, one, zone. It's not a real conventional 2-3 zone, but they, they've broke it out in different spots. They usually only break it out when it's an emergency, when they feel like they're getting torched or they got to change the complexion of the game. When Creighton had that big comeback at Seton Hall, they went to this kind of 1-1-3 one, one, matchup zone. So maybe, maybe they, they sprinkle that in as well. But again, transition, Kispert open threes, Timmy in the post. Those those are the things you got to you that I'll be looking for. And the other the other thing I'll be curious to watch play out. And man, I'm I can't believe I'm about to say this. The one, other thing I'm curious to watch play out is what pace will Creighton play this game at? And I know that sounds bizarre. Like what? You talking about Creighton? Cuz I mean, obviously, Creighton is a transition-based run 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 f- up-tempo, look to fly up and down the floor team. Like, that's how the program's built. That's how this team is built. But if there's one team that Creighton maybe can't outscore and doesn't want to get into a track meet against, it's Gonzaga. They're probably the only team in the country that I'd go, yeah, I don't – like, a track meet against anybody else, I'm like, let's do it. Let's do it. Gonzaga? I don't know. Because keep in mind, keep in mind, Creighton played Gonzaga two years ago in Omaha and tried to run. And Gonzaga hung 103 on Creighton and hung 62 on the Jays in the second half. So how does Creighton handle that? That, that's going to be really, really interesting to me. How does Creighton want this? What kind of pace do they want this thing played at? Like, you you still got to be you and, and play to your strengths and do what you do, which obviously is pushing it in the open floor if, if you're Creighton. But I just think, I, I think of it, I think of it this way. Usually Creighton is a team that pushes it and runs in any situation no matter what. Made basket, missed basket, turnover, not a turnover. Like, no matter what, they are pushing it and running. I just think now you maybe got to be a little bit more careful and mindful of when you want to pump the brakes versus when you want to put the pedal to the metal. 
I'm certainly not saying you want to full-fledged slam the brakes and walk it up the floor. Definitely don't want to do that. But I, I just think picking and choosing and, and just I think I think Creighton's decisions, in particular Marcus Zegarowski's decisions of when to attack and run and when not to, is going to be really interesting and really important. So, you know, you sit there and you go, how does Creighton win this game? How, how can, if you're listening to this right now and you're a Jays fans, you're probably going, Nick, give me some hope, man. Make me feel good. Okay, I'll try to. I'll try to. This can be hard, but I'm, I'll lay out kind of four things or kind of four, there are four things or four ways that Creighton wins this game or four things to kind of think about. Number one, you got to be able to score to beat Gonzaga. Again, Gonzaga, 92 points per game, number one offensive team in the country. You got to be able to score to beat Gonzaga. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win, beat Gonzaga 58-55. You got to have to score. And Creighton can score. They they aren't an offensively challenged team. This is a highly skilled basketball team with really good shooters. And they got a great offensive mind in Greg McDermott with that dry erase board figuring out ways to free his weapons up on the court. They're a team. They're a program that's built to score. So that's good. Like, they can score. So that's number one. Number two, Creighton has seen Gonzaga two times in the past four years. Guys like Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballock, and Damian Jefferson have played against Gonzaga. And I'm telling you, that, that, that helps having seen and faced a team before. And then even beyond that, this is, this is where Creighton being in the Big East helps them. They've played elite top-shelf teams like Villanova, and even this year, played at Kansas this season. Like, they're not in the Valley anymore with that stuff. So Creighton won't be wide-eyed or intimidated at all. Because I can remember, I can remember back in 2012 when Creighton was still in the Missouri Valley Conference, Doug McDermott's sophomore year. Back in 2012, Creighton's still in the Valley and they played North Carolina in the second round of the tournament. And I'm not saying that Austin Chapman and Jahans Manigan, Doug McDermott and Grant Gibbs, I'm not saying they were scared. But there was a little bit of, like, holy shit, that's North Carolina feeling amongst the team as they're getting ready to play them. I, I think that I think the program's increase in profile and jump up in conferences to the Big East eliminates that a little bit. Like, eliminates that factor a little bit. Like, when you're in the Valley, like, you don't get too many cracks at big boys. I mean, I think, my, I, I think back to my... My senior year, 2008, we played DePaul in the first game of the season. I mean, but still, you know, Big East team. We played Nebraska because you play Nebraska every year. But then that was it. And I remember we get to the, we get to the second round of the NIT and we're playing at Florida. And Florida had come up back-to-back to national titles. And you're, again, when we took the floor, it's all you're scared, but you're like, fuck, this is Florida. But, but when you move up conferences, that that – that stuff, you know, you go to the Big East, this team's 
I'm confident this team is battle-tested. They're not going to be afraid of anybody. They're, they're, so that element of it, of like the big, bad, monster Gonzaga, that's, I mean, you, you, think, you think Marcus is like afraid of Jalen Suggs? Come on, man. So I think that matters. Third thing, speaking of Marcus, it's, you know, Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballock. Like, in order to beat Gonzaga, you've probably got to be able to first and foremost go toe-to-toe with Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert. And I'm not saying that, that Marcus Zagorowski and Mitch Ballock are better, but can Mitch Ballock match three for three with Kispert? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mitch is a guy, Mitch could go make seven threes on Sunday. He's got to first shoot seven threes. Still maddening to watch that guy continually turn down open threes. But, like, we've watched it. Like, could Mitch go, would it, if I told you Mitch is going to go seven for ten from three, you, uh, we'd all be like, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, we've seen that before. And, you know, listen, could Marcus Zagorowski go nose-to-nose, toe-to-toe with Jalen Suggs and give J- Jalen Suggs all the smoke he wants? Yeah. Yeah. Marcus is a bad, bad boy now. Marcus Marcus is a bad boy now. And he's playing really good basketball right now. And to, to beat a, a, a team like Gonzaga, you better have an elite ball-dominant guard who can score, create, draw help, make decisions, control the tempo, and maybe most importantly, be fearless and not be afraid of the moment. And that's Marcus Zagorowski. Because if you kind of reverse engineer this thing and be like, okay, if if Creighton wins, who needs to play well? It's like, well, first of all, like when you picture right now, close your eyes and try to picture Creighton winning the game and like what it looks like. You picture Marcus having like 25, right? Like Marcus could have to have a big game like that. Gonna have to have a big, big game like that. And then number four. And this, think about this. I'm going to have to kind of lay this out for you. Gonzaga, all season, 28 games. Take a guess on how many games Gonzaga has been in this year that have been decided by single digits. One. One time. One game decided by single digits. And that was all the way back on December December 2nd against West Virginia. They won by five. So some of you might be saying, Nick, what's your point? My point is this. What's Gonzaga's comfort level late in a close game? Other than that West Virginia game on December 2nd and a stretch of that second half against BYU in the West Coast Conference title game, and that game still ended up being a 10-point win. Other than those two games, they've hammered everyone. They've very, very rarely, very, very rarely had to operate in crunch time, pressure-packed moments in a close game late in the game. Very rarely. So to me, the recipe is simple for Creighton. Hang in there. Hang in there. 
hang in there, keep it close, and then hope that late, you know, it's a four-point game, five-point game with four or five minutes left, and it'll be interesting to watch the pressure and comfort pendulum swing for Gonzaga. I just am saying, like, if I think if it's 81-77 or it's 77-73 with four minutes left, I think all the pressure shifts to Gonzaga. Now, listen, they might handle it well. Who knows? They're really good. But I think all the pressure shifts to Gonzaga. And given the fact that they haven't been in very many close games, that just makes for a very, very interesting scenario. They haven't been in a lot of close games like that. Because Creighton's been in a bunch of those close games. They've been in a lot of tight, close grinders. They are comfortable in those spots. And the pressure dynamic is an interesting one. Because, of course, Creighton feel pressure. I hate to be like, Creighton's going to feel no pressure. Yeah, they're going to they're feel pressure because they want to win the game. But they won't feel it like Gonzaga will feel it. Because, listen, nobody will be picking Creighton to win this game. Nobody. The spread's 13 and a half, 14 points. You know, and, and Gonzaga, Gonzaga isn't just chasing a title. They are chasing history. They aren't just chasing a national title. They're chasing a, they're chasing history. They are chasing immortality in the college basketball world. That's a different kind of pressure, a different kind of beast. So to me, the, the, the recipe for Creighton to win this game is you know, transition defense got to be on point. Can't give Corey Kispert any clean open threes. You got to figure out how to make Drew Timmy uncomfortable in the post. You're going to have to really, how you handle pace, picking and choosing your times, when to run, when not to. Zegarowski's going to have to ball out. Keep it close. Keep it close. Hang around. Try to win it late. If you're Greg McDermott, do not sit on your timeouts. Do not sit on your time. If you feel a run coming, timeout. Call it. If you feel it shifting, call timeout. Man, I can't wait. That's going to be fun. That game is going to be fun. Okay, so I'll wrap it up with uh, with with the rest of Sweet 16. Stick it on Creighton Gonzaga. I mean, I just laid it all out in depth. I mean, I do I do think Creighton's going to give Gonzaga a hell of a fight. I really do. Some tough dudes over there. Zagorowski, Damian Jefferson. You know, those guys are tough dudes. Gun to my head, I'm going to pick Gonzaga. Hard to not to pick them. But you never know. Crazier things have happened in sports and in the tournament before. But I'll pick Gonzaga. Oregon, USC, both teams look great in the opening weekend. Oregon embarrassed Iowa, ran them off the floor. USC embarrassed Kansas, ran them off the floor. USC and Oregon only saw each other one time this season, and it was at USC. USC won. But I like Oregon in this spot. Again, I think Oregon is finally hitting their stride with their top five guys healthy and together. Chris Duarte is playing great. Um, I think they're going to be able to make things tough for Evan Mobley. I think Dana Altman does what he does in his bag of tricks with all the different things he can he can throw at you to, to disjoint or alter or set the tempo, three-quarter court pressure, matchup zone, some full-court pressure, some man-to-man. I think he'll do things to keep USC off balance. I like the Ducks. Michigan and Florida State, 
Florida State's the tallest team in the country. So, you know, you go, okay, they got the size to deal with Dickinson. But this is where I think the Big Ten will have Michigan prepared because Hunter Dickinson has seen elite size and post defenders throughout conference play. So I, I think he'll be able to still get to his spots, make plays in the post. And you saw in that LSU game, Shondi Brown, I told you about him, the Wake Forest grad transfer, he's, he was able to step into that livers role and he shot the ball well and pray, played pretty well for him. I think it's going to be a great game, but I think Mike Smith controls the game at the point guard spot. Dickinson's able to win the paint. And I'll, think, I'll pick Michigan win a really, really close game. UCLA and Bama. Really intriguing matchup. UCLA looked awesome in the first weekend, but man, Bama looked absurdly awesome in in the first weekend, in particular in that Maryland game. Bama hit 16 threes. I think they were 16 of 33. They hung 97 on Maryland. And I just, you know, you look at UCLA and UCLA not great at defending the three. They rank 198th in the country in three-point percentage defense. That's a problem against a team like Bama with how reliant they are in the three. You're going to have to defend the arc. I think UCLA makes it a very entertaining game, but I got Bama pulling away. Baylor-Villanova. I think Baylor actually matches up personnel-wise really well with Villanova. Villanova's one of those teams that they're like unbelievably simple. They just run a few simple actions to try to get you in one-on-one situations where they can take advantage of you. They're very one-on-one oriented. That's not to say they're selfish, but they they really it everything comes down to you got to be able to guard one-on-one if you're playing Nova. And Baylor has the defensive personnel to guard one-on-one. They maybe got the best defensive personnel in the country. Mano y mano. Like Loyola's probably got the best half-court defense defending five as one, but man, Baylor just guy by guy, whew, really good. They're going to be able to switch a lot of screens, pressure and defend one-on-one, and the pressure on the ball is where the void of Colin Gillespie will be felt. Winthrop in North Texas couldn't fully speed up and expose that that point guard situation. I think Baylor will be able to. I think Nova, because they're Nova, puts up a hell of a fight, but Baylor wins. Arkansas, Oral Roberts. Listen, I told you Oral Roberts, my favorite story the first weekend. I'd love to see them keep the train rolling, but I think it gets derailed here. You know, A. Smith, O'Banner, those guys are pretty good players, but Arkansas's athleticism is going to be too much, and I think Arkansas is going to win. Loyola, Chicago, and Oregon State. I mean, if you're if you're just looking at two games this weekend, it's hard pressed. You're hard pressed to say Loyola wasn't the most impressive team of the first weekend of the tournament. I mean, thoroughly dominated Illinois. That was a clinic. And when you think about that half-court defense, you think about their precision on offense and the fact that Crutwig's versatility at the five to pass, to score, to play make, to stretch five men out, really tough. I mean, if Illinois can't beat them, Oregon State can't either. I like Loyola by 10, 12 points. Houston and Syracuse. Um, you know, I doubted Syracuse last week. And I'm going to doubt him again. I'm not learning my lesson. But I, I just I think Houston with the full week to prepare for the zone makes a big difference. Plus, a great way to beat a zone is to crash the offensive glass, right? It's the hardest thing to do out of zone is rebound defensively. Well, it's where Houston's really good. They rank second in the country in offensive rebound percentage. They really, really are good at hitting the glass. I think they're able to hit, get a lot of second chance points. Quentin Grimes is going to be able to knock down a bunch of three, or a handful of threes, or enough threes, I should say. And then defensively, Syracuse lit it up from three. They made 14 and 15 threes in their first two games. Houston ranks 12th in three point percentage defense. I think they're able to contain Buddy Bayheim, contain the three point shooters. I'd take Houston to win. 
And so then in the regional final, I'm going to go with Gonzaga over Oregon, although I think Oregon can give Gonzaga some major issues. I'll take Gonzaga to win. I'll stick with my original bracket prediction of, of Michigan, even though Alabama's playing great. I just think sooner or later they're going to have a cold shooting night, and can they win if they're not knocking down threes? I think Michigan is more built to do that than Bama is, so I'll take Michigan. I got Baylor over Arkansas. I think Baylor's really starting to get it rolling. And you know what, man? I'm going to go with Loyola over Houston. I'm gonna. My eyes told me that Loyola was that was not a fluke. They're legit Final Four good. The numbers back that up. The half court defense, number one in the country. Cameron Crutwig is such a tough matchup at the five. I'll take Loyola to get to the Final Four over Houston. So there you go. Should be another fun weekend of 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 hoops. Enjoy it. Soak it up. And remember, in the meantime, subscribe to the podcast. Just click that subscribe button. certainly helps me out, and it helps you out. Make sure you get all the content right when we drop it. While you're there, leave a five-star rating and a nice review. Okay, I'll see you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. All right, my thanks to Pella. If you're thinking about a new window or a new door, now is the time. Check them out online on the web at PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And uh, my thanks to my good friends at Runza. Best fries on the planet, great burgers, cheese runza, delicious. The food is simply fantastic. Runza makes it all better. A Huda Media Production.